Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome to the to New Books in Literary Studies, a podcast on the New Books Network. I'm Miranda Corcoran and joining me today is Christina Meyer, author of Producing Mass Entertainment, The Serial Life of the Yellow Kid. So thank you so much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. I look forward to our um, discussion today. So before we get started on our discussion of the book, could you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself, your academic background, and some of your research interests? Oh, yes, sure I can. Okay, so concerning my academic background, um, I studied Roman languages and literatures and English and American studies at the universities of Hanover in Germany, Montpellier in France, and in New York. Actually, I was a visiting scholar at Columbia University, New York, when I was working on my um, PhD. And um, this brings me already to some of my research interests here, because in my doctoral thesis, I um, analyzed narrative strategies in fictional texts about the uh, Vietnam War texts by American and Vietnamese authors. And so trauma um, is one of my key research uh, research fields. Um, and you can trace that in my publications, not only in the publications um, on uh, fictional texts, as, you know, such as novels, but also in um, publications that deal with comics and trauma. And you might actually say um, if I may add this, that uh, Art Spiegelman's trauma narrative titled In the Shadow of No Towers, uh, some of um, the listeners may know this text. It's a text that um, addresses the terrorist attacks of 2001. And it was this trauma narrative that actually had inspired my uh, second book, um, the book on uh, producing mass entertainment, The Serial Life of the Yellow Kid, because it was when I was reading. Um, Spiegelman's supplement to the main narrative in which uh, he speaks about what gave him solace in times of crisis, it is that uh, really sparked my interest in the um, in the cultural work of these spectacular newspaper comics of the turn of the 20th century. Um, and this interest has remained ever since. Um, for quite a while, however, I had to put my ideas and questions uh, concerning the newspaper comics of the late 19th century and early 20th um, into my virtual files due to <laughs> other obligations. But I have to admit that my curiosity to learn more about these newspaper comics, these huge, brightly colored forms of mass entertainment, um, that this interest remained. And uh, in particular, I wanted to understand the emergence and uh, success of one of the first comic figures uh, of that time period, the so-called Yellow Kid. Um, Now, just briefly back to my academic background and my research interest. Since 
my studies at the uh, University of Hanover, the Leibniz University of Hanover, and Paul Valéry in Montpellier, I've always been interested in understanding cultural phenomena, how they start, when, where, and why. And these are also the framing questions to my recent book on the Korea of the Yellow Kid. Now, let me maybe just add two more things concerning my research interests. So apart from trauma and trauma narratives, as well as, you know, visual culture and comics, I'm interested in what you might call repetition in forms and practices of seriality. And trauma, you might say, is actually also a serial, repetitive affect. And other research interests, uh, but we can also talk about this a bit later if you wish, include the long 19th century transmedia practices, periodical studies, and um, children's uh, children's literature. Okay. So... Uh, before we take a deep dive into the book itself, could you tell us a little bit about the yellow kid? Who was he and why was he so popular? Mm-hmm. Sure. Um, so let me start with who who was the yellow kid. Allow me to say a few words uh, about the yellow kid first. Um, so the yellow kid is a comic figure that emerged in the late 19th century. Uh, the yellow kid is a boy and his well real name is Mickey Dugan. He has a bald, round head, always grins at the readers. Usually two teeth are visible. Um, The yellow kid has two prominent ears and he has bare feet. He wears a long yellow shirt or dress onto which words uh, are printed. And this, well, shirt, you might say, is a means to communicate uh, with the reader of the comics that the yellow kid uh, appeared in. I should say probably that um, he was a comic figure that appeared in not just one uh, comic or one comic series, but in various comic series in the Sunday newspaper comic supplements of the late 19th century. These supplements were extra sections um, printed in color, and they started to appear regularly from 1893 onwards. And so the Yellow Kid originated in a series titled Hogan's Alley, which was produced by the artist um, Richard Felton Outcult, and later continued by the artist George Benjamin Lukes. And this series, Hogan's Alley, was printed in uh, Joseph Pulitzer's newspaper, The World. That was a um, New York newspaper. In the beginning, the series had different titles, but from late 1895 onwards, the Hogan's Alley title appeared uh, with each uh, each episode. And each episode, and this is something um, th- that interested me uh, also very much, so in each episode was usually a full page, sometimes half page, but a full page comic tableau. What do I mean by that? Um, that means that there's no structuring panel grid that would order the reading direction. Um, in each installment, of the Hogan's Alley series, the Hogan's, uh, the Yellow Kid was the protagonist, uh, surrounded by a cast of recurrent characters, such as the Yellow Kid's sister, um, and animals, such as, for instance, a black cat um, or a goat. 
And then, as I said, he originated in Hogan's Alley. And then in October 1896, the Yellow Kid appeared in a competing series in a competing newspaper. This series was titled uh, McFadden's Row of Flats, and it was published in William Randolph Hearst's New York Journal. And but that's not all, because then the Yellow Kid showed up in yet another comic series, which was captioned Around the World with the Yellow Kid. And he appeared in numerous other comics, including also comics that were produced by um, other artists. So in brief, the Yellow Kid comic figure appeared in different comic series and formats. I haven't even mentioned the comic strips and one panel cartoons that he appeared in in the last decade of the 19th century. So that's the Yellow Kid. Why was he so popular? Well, in order to answer that question, we need to comic figure became popular. So the dynamics of popularization, if you will, it's not as if the Yellow Kid was there all of a sudden and immediately popular. Um, well, to speak about the popularity of the Yellow Kid means also to speak about those who were involved in making him famous. Uh, I can come back to that or talk about um, these dynamics a bit later if you want to. Now, concerning again the question of why, why he was, um, why was he so popular? Well, there were various reasons for his popularity. Um, part of the reason why the comic figure was so popular was uh, because he was available regularly. He was, and he was easily. Uh, immediately recognizable because of his emblematic body shape and iconic features, such as the grin on his face or the ears and the long dress. See, he was available regularly and immediately recognizable. And people um, were able to, to enjoy the adventures of the Yellow Kid on a weekly base, uh, basis, so rhythmically, if you want to. And but yet, with each new installment that the Yellow Kid appeared in in the newspaper series, a variation to the previous installment was given, so that there was something new still to be discovered. Usually, um, a new setting that the Yellow Kid was um, was placed in. Because of the um, periodicity of the carrier medium, the newspaper, and the Yellow Kid's reappearance each Sunday, he became part of the daily lives uh, of many Americans. And we should not forget, the popularity of the Yellow Kid certainly also had to do with the huge, brightly colored comics pages in which he was the protagonist. Um, the visual spectacle, really, it's amazing, um, the visual spectacle of the weekly installments in which the kid appeared was uh, certainly another reason why he was so popular. He, you know, each each week he grinned at the readers and, and invited them to be part of his adventures. So it's not enough, I think, to say that, well, he was cute or that's, you know, why the Yellow Kid was so popular. And by the way, I don't think he's cute. Not at all. <laughs> quite the contrary. I find him quite ugly. Um, <laughs> or um, you could say, you know, he was popular because he was funny uh, or the words uh, on his shirts were funny. Yes, they certainly were. But I think, uh, you know, another reason why he was so popular was because he offered um, a projection screen for many, you know, a projection screen for fears and needs, wishes or desires. 
um, you know, he could be loved at, but he could also love with him at the upper class, for instance. Um, they were very often mocked in the comics pages, in particular uh, for their fashion fads, you know, big hats and stuff like that. Um, but uh, again, coming back to the regularity, I want to add something here. So part of the popularity also has to do with the simple and fast entertainment that the comics provided in which the Yellow Kid appeared. So it's aspects of regularity, availability, recognizable. Um, these aspects are related to um, to his popularity. Um, one last thing I want to add here is um, why he was so popular is because he was so easy to copy. And the more copies appear, the more famous um, also he became. And there is enough proof that readers copied the Yellow Kid, that they enjoyed to produce their own version of the Yellow Kid with a you know short statement on, on, on top of the dress. So you could use his shirt um, that the Yellow Kid wears for satirical comment, um, self-deprecating irony, or any other uh, any other means. And gosh, there were so so many copies, and I wish I could show them to you. Um, you know how people projected their own ideas onto uh, onto the Yellow Kid. Um, no, and one last thing, really, I want to add here is why he was so popular is because he was not only available as a two-dimensional drawing in the comics. The Yellow Kid appeared also on stage, for example, in competing Yellow Kid plays and was available in the form of music folios and in the form of many different three-dimensional consumer wares, uh, dolls, games, uh, etc. I can expand on that a bit uh, later if you want to. Um, so the popularity of the Yellow Kid um, had to do with all that I've mentioned so far. And um, with uh, availability in different in different media forms, um, and uh, well, accessibility. I should have mentioned this before. Um, the newspaper comics, uh, or rather, the Sunday newspaper um, editions, were widely uh, accessible. They were also fairly cheap. Um, five cents uh, each edition, each Sunday. For comparison, a book, uh, a cheap paperback version would cost uh, about a dollar, sometimes 50 cents, or many magazines would cost 25 cents an issue uh, or even more. So this was something that many people could um, could buy and get access to. Yeah, I think there's more to say about the popularity, but I think that suffices. <laughs> So one of the one of the most interesting things I found about your book was that your focus wasn't just on the yellow kid as a sort of self-contained entity. It was really also about how the yellow kid can help us to understand the entertainment industry considered more broadly at the time. Mm -hmm. So why do you think that the yellow kid can help us to better understand the process of production? serialization and consumption at play in the late 19th century? Yeah, well, um, first of all, the career of the Yellow Kid, which uh, you might say really started to set off in early 1896. He was there before um, that, but it really started uh, to set off in early 1896, and which lasted well into the um, early 
years of the 20th, uh, 20th century, I have to admit that I stopped looking for yellow kit products in the decade of the 1920s um, because there was just so much. <laughs> and so the career of the yellow kid is one of the most accessible careers for us today to do research on. Most of the comics um, have been digitized and can be downloaded, as, for instance, via the um, Billy Ireland Cartoon Library and Museum, one of the most amazing places to visit. Um, I had to say this. <laughs> and also thanks to the digitization projects of uh, libraries such as, you know, just to give you an example, the New York Public Library and in particular the Library of Congress, we can also access the debates that revolved around the Yellow Kid. And um, a lot of the uh, other visual material you can also access uh, online um, via diverse um, uh, online uh, libraries. So now to look at how the Yellow Kid became famous, I really believe gives insights into what I would call networked actions of individuals and institutions, um, such as newspaper agencies uh, or lithograph companies, uh, to name but two examples here, and the social, technological, and medial circumstances that the kids' emergence and proliferation also outside of the original carrier medium. Um, so networked actions or, well, mechanisms that were embedded in and spawned by the economic structures uh, of uh, capitalist culture. So the emergence of um, the Yellow Kid in the final decade of the 19th century and the comic figure's proliferation allow us to understand the historical moment in which, well, communicative practices and consuming activities seem to have changed and to understand mass media forms that underwent particular, uh, well, serial dynamizations. And um, I should probably say what I mean by that. Um, uh, serial is understood in the sense of being available regularly, of dealing with and representing, you know, the same stuff with variations repeatedly and continuously in order to attract and um, hopefully re-attract consumers over a long period of time and of operating expansively. So it's not just regularly and repeatedly, but also operating expansively. That means that contents spread into other parts of the newspaper, for instance, and outside of the carry medium into other media formats on the one hand, and that um, the artifacts such as the comics had an increasingly far and wide reach uh, on, on the other. So the Yellow Kid's success, and this is an argument that I make in my book, um, in the mass appeal, was contingent on the comic figures, um, what you can call serial unfolding. So what's this serial unfolding? First, the kids' serialization in the newspaper comic series, in the competing comic series. Um, and second, the term describes the comic figures' proliferation outside the carrier medium and in other forms than the two-dimensional drawings. Now, one more thing that I'd like to add why it helps us to understand all of these things of the, in the late 19th century. So to look at the career of the Yellow Kid helps us to understand how a cultural product kept a diffuse audience engaged across different media. 
you probably know that so many scholars in the past 10, 15 years have been looking at what's termed convergence culture and transmedia storytelling. And I think it might help, as um, Matthew Freeman has also argued, to historicize these, these practices. And um, I really believe that there are many good reasons to revisit the decade in which comics became a commercial mass medium and to explore the huge variety of these multimodal forms of um, expression and experience. Why? Because the last decade of the 19th century was a period in which comics, as well as other cultural products, were imbued in the structures of modernity, meaning industrial mechanization, acceleration, synchronization, and standardization on the one hand, and expansion and uh, contingency on the on the other, meaning you know, among other things, the spatial transformations of the urban landscape and the effects caused by the uh, rapid growth uh, of the cities. And so the Yellow Kid's emergence and development in the comics and outside of them helps us, um, I believe, to understand um, these these aspects. It's really fascinating. Um, so I'm going to imagine that a lot of our listeners, even if they haven't heard of the Yellow Kid, They've probably heard the term yellow journalism. <laughs> would you be able to tell us would you be able to tell us a little bit about the yellow kid and his role in the development of this term and I suppose his role in the competition between Joseph Pulitzer and William Randolph Hearst? <laughs> yeah, um, I'm actually very glad that you asked this question. And usually when I'm invited to give a talk on the Yellow Kid, I'm asked this question. And now you've, you give me the opportunity to break, I hope, once and for all, the myth that the term yellow journalism derives from the Yellow Kid. <laughs> okay, but before I come to that, let me just briefly say a few words about the Yellow Kid's role in um, the newspaper wars between uh, Pulitzer and Hearst. Um, just very briefly. I mean, um, it's a longer story, but uh, let's cut it down here. So um, that the Yellow Kid emerged in a highly competitive media environment is an aspect that is um, usually highlighted in um, the scholarship on uh, on the Yellow Kid or in comic studies uh, that focus on, on the history of comics. And habitually, um, comic scholars place the ubiquity of the Yellow Kid in the late 19th century in the context of the circulation wars between Pulitzer and Hearst. Um, the argument is uh, Richard Alcold worked for Pulitzer, then Hearst came to New York, um, which is true. He came to New York in 1895, and he hired uh, Alcold, um, and by the way, a number of other staff members from Pulitzer, uh, but he hired um, Alcold to draw Yellow Kid comics for his paper. The Yellow Kid was already popular at that time. Um, because, as I said before, um, he started really to set off his career in early 1896. And so um, Hearst came to New York in 1895 and then um, started to... Um, well, he bought a newspaper, a newspaper, by the way, the newspaper of Pulitzer's brother, and started also to um, develop um, a comic supplement. And the first uh, issue of that appeared in October 18, uh, 1896. So before that, right before that, uh, in September, he hired out Cole to draw Yellow Kid comics for his paper, the New York Journal. Uh, which, well, Outcold did, but we should not forget that Outcold continued also to um, draw comics for, for Pulitzer. Um, and uh, Outcold also um, 
uh, commented on you know this this work f- for both Pulitzer and Hearst in some of his comics, but that's a different story. So, um, and this led to a serious fight between the two papers, uh, and the comic figure was right in the middle uh, of all of this. And yes, all of this is right, but that's only part of the story. So, of course, the circulation wars impinged on the Yellow Kid's career. But it it does not suffice, and this is something I argue also in the book, to look at the fighting between these two newspaper barons and their continuous efforts to outbid the other um, in order to understand the success of the Yellow Kid. Uh, Because there were others involved in that. Uh, First of all, the, the, the comic figure had begun to go astray months before Pulitzer and Hearst fought over the Sunday supplement feature. It went... Um... Well, it went theatrical um, and infiltrated uh, the world of advertising. And second, um, competitions are manifest also in uh, in Yellow Kid musical and dramatic compositions and took place between these media. Competition then was not confined to the newspapers. Uh, that means sh- uh, theater show producers were in competition with each other and fought over protection of their respective Yellow Kid compositions by copyright. And you can actually trace that in the copyright catalogs. You know, one of the most tedious tasks for me, but I had to do it and I wanted to do it, is to go through all the copyright catalogs of 1895, 96, uh, and so forth. And so you can see all these things there. Um, in other words, the Yellow Kid was enmeshed uh, not only in a newspaper war between Coming to the question of yellow journalism, and as I said, I wish to break the myth that the term yellow journalism derives from the yellow kid, um, as it has been done so for decades and decades. Um, First of all, uh, Joseph Campbell, um, many listeners may may know him because he has published widely on yellow journalism. And so Campbell was one of the first to point out that this claim, namely the yellow journalism derives from the comic figure does not hold upon closer scrutiny. So I used his books as a reference, and I also conducted my own research in the archives. And um, I can't present uh, all of the results here, but um, let me explain a few things. So first of all, the term yellow journalism had been in use at least 10 years before the Yellow Kid started to become famous. The expression had been implemented in public discourse, meaning in in the newspapers, in the 1880s already. Um, I'll give you examples a bit later, but let me expand on this um, notion for a couple of minutes. As Joseph Campbell, I mentioned before, uh, as Joseph Campbell and other scholars in the history of journalism have pointed out, um, the you know practices of Yellow journalism, crime reports, muckraking, gaudy styles of news news gathering, and so forth, they were already uh, operative in the print media before the inception of the term. So that's one thing that I wanted to uh, to say. And these these practices, scandalous news, and as I said, crime reports and so forth, had already existed in the 1870s. And actually, you can trace them even further back to the rise of the penny press. And uh, likewise, 
denunciations of these new practices, or rather the practices of prime journalism, the exposure of details from the private lives of people, for example, had been formulated in the periodical press for quite a while already. Now, the years of the Yellow Kids popularity, so the, the last decade of the, of the 19th century, were dominated by uh, what you might call anti-mass paper campaigns, uh, and in particular campaigns uh, against uh, Pulitzer and Hearst paper. And, uh, well, it is true that newspapers from 1897 onwards, and magazines as well, would speak about, um, and I noted down a few um, a few expressions here from um, uh, editorial comments and articles. So they would speak about yellow kid style practices or yellow kid journalism uh, for a while. But it was not the comic figure that served as the first referential so source uh, when the opposition to and um, condemnation of the two new newspapers started to heat up. Um, the world and the journal and the yellow kid certainly had a connection. Yes, the newspapers being the carrier media of the Yellow Kid comics pages. And you might even say that the Yellow Kid wore the tabloid vernacular style of the two newspapers on his dress. But again, the term yellow journalism does not derive from the name of the Yellow Kid. Um, so I think it's about time that I uh, give you examples to, to show this or to, to make my argument here. So. What has been covered in research is how in the published debates about the world and the journal, the color denomination, so yellow, was used to contrast the ethics of Pulitzer's and Peirce's paper to the what was called white essay ethics of the conservative press, of the established newspapers, such as the uh, New York Times. Um, and this dichotomy, you know, of white newspapers, um, as they would call themselves, or the clean and wholesome newspapers, bringing pure and factual news, and the yellow papers of Pulitzer and, and Hearst, perpetuated in the pages of, for instance, the New York Times, and also of uh, the other newspaper called the New York Press. Um, Edwin, uh, not Edwin, uh, Irvin, sorry, Irvin Wortman of uh, the New York Press certainly used uh, the color description yellow to go on par with the conservative New York Times and to distinguish his New York Press from the mass papers of uh, Pulitzer and, uh, and Hearst. And so the first time the term yellow journalism appeared in Wortman's uh, New York Press um, in one of his editorial comments was uh, in January 1897, to be more precise, January 31st, 1897. And we're lucky because we can download this page also uh, from um, uh, various online uh, archives. So this is commonly considered the moment the term was coined. You know, on that day, um, the New York Press printed two short notes or comments on yellow journalism. Um, and I just thought that I quote from these um, to show this. So in the first brief note, um, the comment writes about, quote, someone who begins low in journalism. I do not know how anyone could possibly start lower than by obtaining employment in yellow journalism. 
So that was one comment. And a little further down on the same page, um, there's another snippet that was copied from another newspaper. And um, this snippet was titled, Victory for the Yellow Journalism. And, um, and in this uh, in this snippet, it is said that uh, when you know a man attempts to read a New York paper, uh, it makes him drunk. So this is how the term was introduced in the New York Press in 1897. But it was not the first time it was used. I come back to that in a second. In Wardman's editorial comments, um, the term served as a means to distinguish the press, certainly from, you know, the cheap mass papers of Pulitzer and Hearst, and to stress the, well, intoxicating uh, outcome of consuming those newspapers. You know, you get drunk um, by, by reading this. Um, and, uh, uh, you know, this, this idea of not just intoxicating, but this idea of uh, something being uh, contagious. And you can see this in many other uh, comments uh, of uh, early 1897, you know, the potentially contagious effects of the mass papers um, that uh, commentators such as Wardman and others um, emphasized to warn their readers. Um, that, that, uh, you know, the, the yellow color was used as a qualitative marker to denote what was perceived as uh, contagious effects of the papers on the consumers has not received much attention in the scholarship on the late 19th century mass press. The papers, you know, the journals in the world's uh, what you might call slopping over <laughs> or meaning their seeming uncontainability has, um, you know, been largely ignored. But the, the, the color yellow was and still is an evocative term, you know, applicable to various aspects. And it was in wide use at the time of the Yellow Kid's rise to fame. Now, I think I need to give you some uh, proof here now that it had been in use before the Yellow Kid uh, became, uh, became famous. Um, first of all, pejorative meanings of the color yellow in regard to the printing culture can be traced back to the early decades of the century. What comes to mind, for instance, uh, are the charges that were held against the very um, popular uh, yellow covers, you know, in mid-19th century uh, America, but also in England, you know, the, the so-called yellowbacks. Um, more than 10 years before um, the Yellow Kid became famous. Um, and you can already find reports on um, yellow journals. And newspaper columns were filled with discussions about what was called yellow cover journalism or yellow journalism. So one example is from 1883, in which an author compared, and I'm quoting here, what is proper and honest and decent journalism with the disgraceful strategies of this cheap uh, yellow press. Um, the last part was not uh, a quote, just the first. And according to the to the author, the American reading public saw itself confronted with, and now here's another quote from 1883, an age of yellow-covered enterprise. And three years before that, you know, in the 1880s, in 1880, newspapers were writing about, uh, again, a quote, the attacks of yellow journalism, meaning the attacks against politicians, for example. And these were summarized as, another quote, yellow journalism of today. So as you can see, the term had been in use way before the yellow kid became famous. And the color yellow was used also in other, in other contexts. Um, 
there's a long story to tell, but uh, I think I just stop here. Um, I could go on uh, about the color yellow, um, but I think that suffices here for uh, for now. Thanks very much for that, and I'm glad that we could sort of put that myth to bed because it's it, it's quite a it's quite a popular <laughs> one. Um, yeah. <laughs> so one interesting thing that you touched on previously and that I'd like to discuss a bit more is, I guess, the relationship with, between technology and comics in the 19th century. Mm-hmm. So how exactly were comics produced and marketed at that time? And what role did new technologies play in the popularization of comic books? Um, okay, so I'm sorry, but I first have to say those were not comic books yet. Comic books is early 20th century. We're talking about comic series in in newspapers. But I'm I'm sorry, I just had to add this. So um, the comics in the newspapers were produced under uh, enormous stress. Uh, Each week, uh, the artists uh, had to fill eight pages of the Sunday newspaper comic supplements. In the beginning, they consisted of four, um, but from 1896 onwards, it was eight pages of comics. And when we talk about... um, comic series such as the Yellow Kids comics, we talk about a lot of space that needed to be filled. Don't forget the size of the supplements. Um, I mean, Pulitzer's uh, comic weekly and Hearst's was, you know, um, similarly huge. So Pulitzer's comic weekly was approximately 18 to 22 inches. That's 46 to 55 centimeters. So it's quite a lot of space that needed to be filled each week, each week. Um, so many, but not all, not all, but many were produced actually by more than one artist. Uh, with the with regard to the Yellow Kid comics, for instance, it was not just Richard Outcold who was involved in producing Yellow Kid comics. Um, when he started drawing the McFadden's Rose series, which was published in uh, William Randall First New York Journal, the author. Edward Waterman Townsend contributed narrative columns that framed the illustrations by Outcold. So the McFadden's Row series was produced collaboratively. And likewise, the uh, series that I mentioned before, the Around the World with a Yellow Kid, uh, that ran for half a year in Hearst's paper in 1897, um, that was also produced collaboratively. It was Outcold and um, Rudolf Edgar Bloch, who was the editor of the Sunday Supplement at that time, um, that worked together to produce the respective uh, respective in, uh, installments. Um but that's not all, actually. In brief, there were various people involved in the production process of comics, and not just the artists. Um, often, the people working in the printing room had a say when it came to the to the coloring of comics. Now, with regard to marketing, I'm not sure if we can already talk about marketing yet. But um, one key or key players in this context um, were lithograph companies. These um, lithograph companies produced small size lithography posters, um, uh, actually in color, with famous comics characters such as the Yellow Kid, um, promoting a newspaper and their Sunday supplements, which were then sent to retail stores, for instance, um, and to be hung up in stores. So lithograph companies you might say they didn't really promote the comics themselves or the comic series, um, or they rarely did, but they helped to promote a specific newspaper and their colored supplements with the help of comics characters. 
and um, advertising agencies and newspaper syndicates played a role in the marketing of comics um, or comics characters too. For instance, the advertising agencies often hired um, anonymous artists to copy uh, copy popular uh, characters such as the Yellow Kid um, that were then used for all kinds of consumer wares uh, or products such as cigarettes or clothing. So they um, capitalized on the Yellow Kid's popularity and used the character's fame to promote uh, consumer goods. And uh, as I said, many of these were actually produced by anonymous artists. Um, And uh, I talked or I mentioned uh, newspaper syndicates. Um, So I guess these really played, uh, next to lithograph companies, these really played the biggest role in disseminating reading material and in... um, well, marketing comic series, um, even if not intended. Uh, up until the 1890s, newspaper syndicates such as the you know, United Press, the UP or the AP or SS McClure um, commonly distributed news and fictional, that is, serial stories to other newspapers and magazines and um, also abroad, but that's a different story uh, to tell. And in the mid-1890s, these um, agencies, these newspaper syndicates, uh, started to spread other features, including comics. Um, This is often forgotten in the history of comics, um, that these were also um, syndicated uh, with the help of these um, agencies. Uh, The McFadden's Row series, for instance, was syndicated to other uh, American newspapers, for instance, uh, for, for example, and was not only printed in uh, uh, Hearst New York Journal and not only available to New York readers, but to readers uh, in other regions um, at that time. And I'd like to add here, one of the first internationally syndicated comic series was um, not The Yellow Kid, but was uh, Rudolf Dirk's Katzenjama Kids that started in 1897. And there's this wonderful article, and I noted down the uh, title because I wanted to uh, draw attention to this, uh, written by um, Sandra Gabrielle and Paul Moore, an article that um, covers covers these things, uh, you know, international syndication. It's the Globe on Saturday and uh, the World on uh, on Sunday, Toronto Weekend Editions, and the influence uh, of American Sunday papers. So I just wanted to make sure to. Uh, throw this out um, to everybody to read. And so in short, when it comes to the production and um, dissemination uh, of comics in the late 19th century, it was a network of, uh, well, let's call them social agents uh, that were involved in uh, in these processes. Coming briefly to the uh, other part of your question, um, technologies. So New technologies such as uh, the web-fed rotary press and um, electrically run machinery, typesetting machines and more. And uh, the expanding railroad infrastructure certainly helped to facilitate the production um, and uh, well, also marketing of such material as the newspaper comics. for instance, production costs uh, would be cut down and the reproduction of material uh, was facilitated and could also be sped up. Um, and in this context, I think we should also not forget the distribution network. I mean, I talk about uh, the railroad infrastructure, but um, 
there's something else here that we should not forget. Apart from the fact that newspapers could be bought via subscription, um, they were also available as single issues that readers could buy at news kiosks um, or from newsboys or newsgirls. And the, well, as I mentioned before, expanding railroad network certainly also contributed to to the spreading of uh, reading material um, uh, such as uh, such as the comics, and let me add, uh, it was not just New York uh, uh, New Yorkers that consumed the Yellow Kid comics. Um, the comic figure was known to readers at the East as well as West Coast. Uh, it was known in New York, in Chicago, in uh, San Francisco, to name but a few cities here and other regions, uh, where he was um, well a celebrity. So. My next question is actually kind of a related question. Uh, who would have been the primary audience for these comics? So what kind of people would have read about the Yellow Kid? Okay. Um, well, the short answer is adults. <laughs> um, a slightly longer uh, answer is there were certainly many children that consumed the comics too, um, simply because the parents bought the papers and brought them home. Um, but the target audience were adults the target audience for, for, for the comics, in particular the uh, working class, because we should not forget that the main audience of both Pulitzer's World and uh, Hearst Journal was the uh, working class, the white working class, as well as, um, well, some middle class uh, members, and though they didn't like to admit it, upper class readers too. I found enough evidence uh, in letters and autobiographies that it was, well, in want of a better term, a cross-class audience that consumed the Sunday comic series, um, the Yellow Kid comic series, and later also other series. Um, so it's readers with different social, ethnic, and economic backgrounds that uh, enjoyed the um, enjoyed the pages. Um, and they would learn about the Yellow Kid not only through the comics, but uh, through the, well other forms that he appeared in, for instance, the multiple theater plays. Um, so if you haven't read, you know, about the, um, if someone was unfamiliar with the Yellow Kid through the comics, um, he or she or the readers or the consumers um, would find out about the Yellow Kid through theater plays, for instance. So the kid was omnipresent. Um, and audiences did not only engage with the Yellow Kid comics, they also um, consumed the comic figure in other ways. Um, and, um, you know, watching him on, on the theater stage, but, uh, for instance, also imitating or doing what was called the Yellow Kid Dance, which was a dance of, you know, high kicks. Um, there's actually a film about that uh, that is available on the um, online at the Library of Congress. So those... And last thing I want to add here is uh, those people uh, unfamiliar with the comics would still learn and read about the Yellow Kid also by means of the public debates that took place in newspapers and uh, and magazines. And these debates continued well into the uh, into the twentieth century. But to come back to the beginning, so the primary audience was adults. So moving on from readers to perhaps a question of how they read The Yellow Kid, uh, one interesting thing I noticed in your book was that you point out that each installment of The Yellow Kid offers multiple readings or ways of understanding the text. So how did audiences at the time engage with this comic and what were the primary pleasures derived from reading this kind of comic? 
Okay, sure. So one thing I um, need to say first, or want to say first, though, is that in my study, I'm not trying to trace actual reading experiences and interpretations of the comics pages. So I do not uh, depict uh, what's called the historical reader or historical readers, um, because these are, as you know, scholars such as Charles Johanningsmeyer and others have pointed out, elusive beings, um, because they rarely uh, recorded how they reacted to, um, to their material. Now, what I'm doing is I'm actually looking at reading possibilities or interpretive uh, options that are inscribed in the uh, comics pages. To, to rephrase this a bit, I examine the ways in which the Yellow Kid comic um, tableaus uh, encourage reading uh, events. I look at the multiple addresses um, that are uh, included in the pages. I explore the layout, composition, the combinations of modal elements such as topography, the use of color, framing lines, etc. And how through these and many other devices, meaning is made possible. Now. Uh, for those who don't know these Yellow Kid comics, let me just uh, say a few things here about uh, about the episodes. So they are colorful, yes, and uh, entertaining, uh, and spectacular versions of the growing city. They reflect, one might say, the um, spatial transformations of the um, city of New York in the verticality of the page format. So they were usually in vertical format, printed in vertical format, and they take place in New York City. And in the in, in, in the lower part of Manhattan, I should add. In the background of each episode, printed in vertical in the vertical format, we find multi-storied tenement buildings um, and the tall poles with connecting clothing lines, uh, fire escapes, you know, hung with bedding and clothes and so forth, uh, a crowd of people scattered in all corners uh, and levels of the page uh, and so forth. Um, the comic pictures, uh, comic, I'm sorry, the comic pages of both Hogan's Alley and McFadden's Row uh, Flats focus on the, um, on the transformations in American society at the end of the 19th century. The the social and economic uh, inequities in the ur new urban space, um, as well as the question of mobility within urban space and the concomitant question of who's included in and who is excluded from the expansionist uh, city demography and from social practices, uh, events, uh, and leisure activities, and in what ways and to what extent. I should uh, add um, that they do not offer solutions to inequalities, but they negotiate these um, social and economic uh, inequities. Now, these questions of participation, access, uh, exclusion, and um, distinction, you might say. Um, in other words, who's included and who is excluded and in what way and to what extent, running through both comic series bear, I believe, a special relevance um, and uh, immediacy if we consider the fact that the comic series, both comic series, appeared in the historical context of U.S. nation-state formation and uh, pressing issues concerning the eligibility uh, criteria to acquire uh, to acquire citizenship. Now, in each um, episode, uh, before I come to the uh, multiple meanings that are made possible, so in each episode, the artists um, 
well, implicitly or explicitly inquire into the possibilities and restrictions of access to and um, formations uh, forms of participation in urban uh, in urban modernity. Um, the artists take the tenements as recurrent settings to negotiate um, how social relations evolve, how human interaction takes place in the big city, and they focus in particular on how the working class tenants uh, and immigrants uh, and poor inhabitants are integrated in or excluded from modern city lines, uh, city life. I'm sorry. Um, so in other words, they make eligible um, the pages offer interpretive schemes of uh, modern uh, urban life. Now, coming to this this notion of multiple readings. Um, First of all, in very simplistic terms, uh, there was something for everyone. You know, simple gags, visual gags, such as someone stepping on someone else's clothes. Um, in addition, we have, you know, vernacular language and the imitation of dialects and writing. We have dialogues that are entertaining because of misunderstandings um, uh, and, and many more, uh, many more things here. Uh, and the pages, I should also say, are uh, filled with cliche-laden representations and uh, ethnic and racial stereotypes that have been perpetuated in popular culture um, are also repeated in these uh, in these comics. Now, readers um, could and well still can engage with the pages in various ways. One thing that I argue in my book is that the um, comic tableaus, the Yellow Kid comic tableaus, um, are uh, prismatic you know, refracting the many topical aspects um, of the late 19th century in many ways for consumers to engage with. Um, in the pages, the artists, um, uh, you know, Lukes, Occult, um, Townsend, Block, all those that were involved in the production, include areas of knowledge and interests um, that were known to to the readers. You know, there were references to current events, to to political issues, uh, be that local or national or foreign, and to to topical debates. Moreover, areas of interest um, included, for instance, um, references uh, or allusions to popular entertainment forms of that time, especially to vaudeville, and to popular songs, to performers, to popular plays, um, to nursery rhymes. Uh, uh, and more. And, and you could find these kinds of things in each and every uh, episode for the readers to engage with. Um, and another thing that I argue in my book is that the Yellow Kid comics uh, can be enjoyed as single one-time installments. You know, you just read it once and then you don't read it again. You don't need prior knowledge to understand the page. They're, you know, self-enclosed entities, if you wish. So the Yellow Kid comics can be enjoyed as one-time installments and or as episodes in a continuous yet non-linear series. Um, and pleasure can emerge by means of uh, the reading options inscribed within one episode, you know, finding all kinds of things, as well as inter-serially, you know, within one um, uh, within one series, but also between the episodes um, of the competing series. Um, so there are various ways to to engage with the with the series with the comic tableaus. And now the comic tableaus heterogeneous composition. You know, they're 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 combinations of competing uh, modal elements and well, at times also conflicting messages. 
fulfill diverse needs and generate different means of, uh, of pleasures. Readers, for instance, without or with very basic knowledge of the English language or readers without interest in reading the words um, were still able to enjoy the comics pages. Um, just think of, you know, the pictorial parts and the colorfulness. It's really a spectacle that was presented uh, on the newspaper newspaper page. In other words, being um, unable to read was no uh, impediment to enjoying them. And even without reading the words printed on the page, you know, in speech balloons, boxes, uh, or whatever, and in particular in the narrative columns in the McFadden's Row series, the sides offered um, illicit pleasure. They invite visual scanning and searching, searching for the protagonist um, and other recurrent characters and animals, uh, uh, for example without necessarily forcing the reader to delve into the, um, well, compositional details or the words printed on the pages. And readers with both visual and verbal literacy could use the pages according to their preferences and needs. Now, I cannot explain all of the reading options. Let me maybe point out um, two here. So for regular readers of one of the comic series, it was pleasure to find not only the protagonist, the yellow kid, and look what he you know, was doing, but also the serial props, as I call them. Those are the other recurrent characters and animals, such as the yellow kid sister mentioned before, and her name was uh, or is Kitty Dugan, or another girl named Molly Brogan, or a boy named Sleepy Dempsey, and many more. But names, I should also add here, did not play such an important role to make the surrounding stock figures recognizable for readers. Um, the artists outcalled and um, later looks endowed them with specific traits, such as recurrent facial expressions um, or the reappearance of the same clothes or, for instance, a particular uh, falling position in the tableaus. You know, the, the Slippy Dempsey boy, for instance, he, in each and every episode, um, he falls down from some kind of uh, high building or uh, <laughs> from some high position. Uh, but he always re reappears, you know, in the next episode, he's back again. Just like, what's his name, Kenny in... Um, uh, South Park, you know, always <laughs> back. <laughs> False uh, injury, but it always comes back. So um, this is something, um, you know, already uh, quite interesting to to take a look at um, where he is in the next episode. And recurrent animals, um, you know, include a black cat, a green parrot, and a very, very hungry goat. This goat is hilarious. In each episode, uh, usually the goat eats something uh, or destroys something. And, you know, it's funny to find these uh, these elements, you know, similar to the where is Waldo kind of um, reading um, that we know, um, know today. Um, when George Lukes took over the popular Hogan's Alley series in October, he kept only a number of the original members of the cast. Um, among others, he kept the animals, you know, the, the goat, the cat, the parrot, and a couple of the other characters, uh, such as Slippy Dempsey. Um, but uh, he also introduced new recurrent elements for the Yellow Kid comic tableaus and for the readers uh, to enjoy and also to distinguish uh, this uh, Yellow Kid comic series from the McFadden's Rose series in the other newspaper. Um, let me just 
um, mention a few here of the recurrent elements that Luke's uh, adds to the Hogan added to the um, Hogan's Ellie series. That's a nameless boy. He has no name, but he's in a flying machine. Each, um, you know, a flying machine with balloons. So in each episode, he's someplace else. And, you know, it's fun to to take a look at where he is and what he's doing with his flying machine. Um, uh, others include, for instance, a handstand acrobat. Um, he's always doing a handstand somewhere in the page. And more uh, characters uh, joined, the, uh, joined the crowd. The most prominent of which were probably Alex and George. And these are twins and, well, replications of the of the yellow kid. They also wear uh, yellow dresses and they grin at the readers in each uh, in each uh, episode. And now coming to the multiple multiple readings. So finding these elements is, is, is fun. It's in particular also funny, I think, um, or entertaining. Because Luke's uh, inserted uh, visual parodies uh, of Outcold in his uh, comic tableaus as a means of, you know, teasing or bantering. These two artists uh, knew each other or have, had known each other for a long time. And um, uh, they did this, uh, you know, as a kind of insider joke also, um, a weekly kind of bantering. And some of these visual parodies are quite large and, you know, easily identifiable. Some of them small and some of them are so small that only a magnifying glass really helps finding them. Uh, in one episode, for instance, um, the, the parrot that I mentioned before um, wears a mask. And this mask is actually um, the face of Outcold. But these visual elements then were only readable for uh, and made sense to those who knew how Outcold looked. Um, and so, yeah, as I said, to search for the serial profs and their doings is one of the repeated pleasures uh, inscribed in each of the uh, uh, installments. Other forms of entertainment certainly derive from uh, from from humor, but um, I think uh, I've had uh, I've said enough already. <laughs> That's incredible. It's such a rich series. There's just there's so much going on. Yeah. Um, and I guess we can maybe extend that into the next question, because at one point in the book, you do talk about how the yellow kid sort of left his original context, the supplements in which he first appeared and permeated consumer culture and the public space. Can you explain a bit about how the character proliferated beyond the source material? Yeah, yeah, sure. So um, public space, for instance, I just um, I should have mentioned this before when I was talking about the uh, lithograph companies. Um, these also produced large size uh, posters that uh, were, uh, you know, visible in the cities, um, and, you know, similar to billboard signs. Um, so the yellow kid was really in public space visible to to everybody walking, uh, walking the streets. But now, um, let's come to when um, the Yellow Kid really started to permeate consumer culture. Um, as I said before, the Yellow Kid appeared in the series Hogan's Alley first. And in March 1896, he started to exit his carrier medium, the newspaper. Um, manufacturing firms and theater producers, as well as advertising agencies, were among the first to use the comic figure for their purposes. Um, uh, I said this also, I think, uh, before theater producers began working on adaptations of the Hogan's Alley series in early 1896. And um, later that year, we can actually see quite a competition between Hogan's Alley and McFadden's role plays. So it's not just the comic series uh, that competed, but also theater plays with the same titles that competed. Um one of the most interesting advertisements, uh, speaking about um, advertising agencies, um, 
and it's actually a series of ads, was produced between August 1896 and January 1897 and, and was printed in, uh, in the trade press. The Rosenfeld Company, a firm that produced uh, and sold night robes and pajamas um, with retailers in Baltimore and, um, and New York, hired artists to copy the Yellow Kid comic tableaus and rewrite them in the form of advertising posters. Um, the ads do not just use the Yellow Kid comic figure. The Yellow Kid is um, you know, prominently shown in these ads. But the ads also imitate the Sunday comics full page spread layout. You know, there's no structuring grid. It's the, the tableau layout that the, the advertisements also uh, imitate. The crowded page and the artistic strategies of um you know, space filling words and using sign carriers or banners and, you know, clothes as promotional signs. All this is transferred um, to the full page advertisement tableaus. Um, and, you know, the techniques of dialect, speech presentations as well, and the language puns, all of this is included in the advertisements, um, in, uh, imitated in, in these advertisements from August 18, um, uh, 1896 to January 1897. Um, these and, you know, also manufacturers and retailers took notice of the Yellow Kid and, you know, by that also contributed to making, to making him famous. So the comic figure turned into an advertising tool and was used as a promotional device in small size and large size and, uh, advertisements inside as well as outside of the original uh, newspaper, um, uh, The World. And um, as I mentioned, some of the large size posters appeared also in the streets of New York, um, you know, next to billboard signs promoting uh, a vaudeville show, for instance. Um, moreover, the Yellow Kid was appropriated for a number of theater adaptations, as I mentioned before, and uh, adorned music sheet covers, and he was celebrated in a number of songs. He was turned into diverse, in diverse merchandise and souvenir wares, um, in purchase, purchasable and collectible in all kinds of forms. You know, yellow kid candy, yellow kid pin bat buttons, dolls, scrapbooks, souvenir cars, ugh, you name it. It's, it's quite an amazing collection. I can't list all of this here. Um, and by the way, there was a competing series of pin bed buttons, of yellow kid pin bed buttons. Uh, one series was produced by a manufacturing firm in New Jersey, the other in New York. So, uh, gosh, there was so much that was available. Um, and some of the items can still be purchased online today, um, you know, on, on online auction, um, such as uh, eBay and others. And two years ago, I think it was two years ago, um, I saw that a full package of Yellow Kid chewing gum from 1897 was uh, sold online. No joke. Wow. <laughs> yes. <laughs> so the, the Yellow Kid really became a ubiquitously known comic figure in America in the final decades um, uh, of the 19th century. And I could say so much more, but I think it gives you an idea of where he was and how he proliferated. Um, uh it's it's just amazing he's a fascinating figure he does it does seem like he was everywhere at the time yeah so in your book you argue that the yellow kid raises complex questions about authorship and ownership can you expand on this a bit um yeah of course um 
So uh, when we when we look at the career of the Yellow Kid, um, the claim that it was Richard Outcault um, who was you know responsible for the comic figure's fame does not hold. Um, as you may have noticed by now, there were others um, others involved in uh, in the success of the Yellow Kid. Outcult may have originally penned the Yellow Kid, but control soon was not on him anymore. The comic figure began to set off in various directions of its original setting uh, in 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 March 18, 1896. And um, in an article, or rather in an uh, essay uh, that Outco published two years uh, later in 1898, he actually also reflects on these things, and he admits that um, you know he lost control over um, uh, over the comic figure. The comic figure defied authorial and legal control. Now, as is well known, shortly before Outcold started um, drawing uh, yellow kits for the Hearst newspaper, the New York Journal, he had asked for copyright protection for the uh, what he called little character. In a letter he sent to the Copyright Office to Ainsworth uh, Spofford at the Library of Congress in September 1896. Um, this um, is repeated in many um, publications on uh, the comics history. and. Outcult's attempt, um, I would say, um, to obtain legal protection for the Yellow Kid um, had much more to do with the proliferating images and, you know, the many manufacturing products of the Yellow Kid and his wish to guard his own commercial interest of, um, uh, of the creation than with the impending move to his newspaper in, uh, in October of the same year. Um, copies had begun to spread before the staff members of the world and the journal were fighting over the yellow kid from uh, 1896 onwards. But I should also add there were n- there was no court case or something. Um, I, I just want to point this out. There was no uh, court case uh, concerning uh, concerning the the yellow kid. Um, Outcult took notice of the diverse imitations, both in print and uh, in other media forms. Um, and in his letter to the Copyright Office, Outcold highlighted, uh, and I'd like to, to quote this passage I usually do when I talk about the Yellow Kid, is um, that the comic figure, quote, is not intended for an article of manufacture. Remember, by that time, we're talking September, um, we can already see, you know, all these pinback buttons and other things um, in consumer culture. Now, the other thing that I want to mention with regard to uh, Outcold's letter is, um, although a copyright application registration was signed, Outcold did not, and this is a term that is used, complete, he did not complete the copyright of the specific, and again, this is a quote, design of the Yellow Kid, and he was unable to secure copyright protection of the comic figure. Um, I'm not the first to point this out. Ian Gordon um, uh, um, already talks about these issues in, uh, in, in great length in his study on comic strips and consumer culture that was published in 1998. So, uh, uh, you know, to repeat, Outcult never completed his copyright protection. Just to uh, explain this a bit, um, in late 19th century, an intellectual composition, you know, that is to say a, a, a work of authorship, would become common property in the public domain if the creator um, and originator of this work, in this case, Outcold, 
did not send in the required numbers of copies and the required money deposit to the Library of Congress within a period of time that was allotted in the copyright laws. And we can all read um, this in the copyright in the copyright laws. Um, so again, Alcott never completed this uh, copyright protection. Um, and yet, even with an official copyright entry in the copyright uh, catalog, he would not have been able to exert control over the comic figure and to ward off competitions. Um, it seemed that the Yellow Kid defied the logic of uh, ownership under copyright law. And, you know, something similar, um, or actually the same, happened with another creation of Alcold, um, uh, Buster Brown. He again uh, tried to... Um, uh, well, no, that's a longer story I'm not going to be talking about. Um, now, when I say the Yellow Kid raises complex questions concerning um, ownership and, uh, and um, authorship, I do not only mean copyright. Um, the existence of multiple um, competing versions of the Yellow Kid in the newspaper comics and um, outside of the newspapers, too, prompts questions um, uh, about authorship. Why? Because Outcold may have initially had the idea for and, uh, you know, penned the comic figure, uh, but he's certainly not the sole author who instigated and was responsible for the career of the Yellow Kid. There were other artists, also anonymous artists, um, involved. And I can't even talk about all the versions of the Yellow Kid in other comics or the appropriation of uh, specific features um, of the Yellow Kid that were transferred to other comic characters. And, you know, as an aside, I think this might be of interest also is that these questions, you know, questions of ownership and authorship were also quite visibly negotiated in the, in the comic series. Both Luke's and Outcold repeatedly addressed the question of who the original Yellow Kid is and who the author of the comic figure uh, is in uh, in their episodes. And so, one last thing I'd like to add in this uh, in this context here is that even though um, Outcold publicly announced in 1898, you know, the essay that I um, uh, uh, indicated before, how tired he was of producing Yellow Kids. He uh, continued to exploit the comic figure's success in the early 20th century. In 1907, um, Outcold founded the um, Advertising Company, and until his death, his advertising company sent out printing blocks with a yellow kit, promoting all kinds of you know, products and practices such as gardening, uh, crafting, hunting, you name it. And so you might say, that the production and distribution of Yellow Kid printing blocks from 1910 onwards uh, can also be understood as another effort to, well, reclaim, um, reclaim authorship uh, over, over the comic figure that um, loomed up uh, in spite of him, as he would say. He's really such an interesting figure, the Yellow Kid. He seems like almost like a prism through which to view so much of mm -hmm. the shifting cultural paradigms of the late 19th century and sort of the beginning of what we consider, you know, modernity in, in, in quotation marks. They're just, he seems to encompass so much and he touches on so much of what was changing and dynamic at that time in history. 
you know, it's 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 really, really fascinating. And I, I think we could probably talk for an entire like day about yeah. the other kid and what he signifies. But Get I think started, I'll never stop. <laughs> but I, I think we might have to leave it there for today. But before yeah. we finish up, I'd love to know, are you working on any new projects at the moment or have you got any new um, books or articles or anything like that in the pipeline? Um, uh, yeah, actually, I do. <laughs> For, first, in the pipeline, a couple, and uh, that reminds me I need to work on those. Um, but, well, one thing is I'm still working on newspaper comics um, because there is um, still so much, I believe, to discover and talk about, and not just The Yellow Kid, other newspaper comics of that time period. Um, the newspaper comics have been lying in the archives for way too many years, um, and the scholarship on American culture. Um, and, and on American modernity can and should extend their research to the field of mass-produced comics at the turn of the century, um, I believe. So uh, there will be um, soon um, an article that will appear um, in uh, which I talk about um, framings of, uh, of comics, of newspaper comics. But apart from the newspaper comics that I'm uh, working on that and that I actually also include in my teaching, uh, apart from that, I'm currently working on children's literature of the 19th century, especially literature that was uh, printed in the uh, periodicals of the post-war uh, period. And I examine the cultural work that these magazines and the and the stories um, printed in them performed. So that's one thing. And um, there will hopefully also be a an article soon to be published uh, on that. And another, I'm just waiting for it to arrive actually and another project that i'm um working on that i've actually started working on um two years ago and that i'm you know coming back to because there's still so much to 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 write about is this so-called american weekly that was printed in the first half of the 20th century um from the 19 teens to the uh, 1960s if i remember correctly 1966 and i'm looking at the uh, at the serials that were printed in the internationally syndicated um, American Weekly, you know, serials that were produced by, among other, among others, international artists such as Salvador Dali, Leon Baxt, Edmund Dulac, or uh, Nell Brinkley, to name but a few artists here, and um, you know that's a cultural product um, that has been ignored largely in the scholarship on uh, on American culture, and I think it's about time that we take a look at those because millions of uh, Americans read the American Weekly, um, and so that's another uh, larger project um, that I'm uh, that I'm working on. And so these are two of my research um, areas and projects. And, um, well, as you can see, I'm still researching forms and practices of seriality, you know, of the dialectic of repetition uh, and, uh, and variation. I don't know, call me a serial killer. <laughs> <laughs> oh, brilliant. That, that, if, you, if you have a, a Twitter profile or a blog, I, I think that should be, should I be the do. name. I am on Twitter, uh, actually. And, um, yeah, post a couple of things on these issues there as well. Yeah. Excellent. Um, so yeah, it sounds like you're you're addressing some some very interesting um, ideas in your work, and you're addressing some areas of American culture that really haven't been explored in depth, but really deserve to be because they're clearly very important. 
So it, it seems like some interesting work and, you know, that we should that we should all be looking out for <laughs> in the future. Um, so I just wanted to say thank you again, Christina, for joining us on the program today. And your book, Producing Mass Entertainment, The Serial Life of the Yellow Kid, is out now from Ohio State University Press. And you can purchase a copy from their website and I think from most good online retailers as well. So thank you again for joining us. It was a really, really fascinating discussion. Thank you. Thank you for having me. And thank you for all these wonderful questions. I, I just love talking about the Yellow Kid. It's <laughs> so fascinating. I, I feel like I've learned so much um, and just fascinating figure. So thank you so much for that. And thank you also to our audience for tuning in. You can find more podcasts on a host of different topics at newbooksnetwork.com.